Coming up on today's show, we've heard what the politicians think of the proposed health care deal. We'll hear from the Canadian Medical Association and get their take on what the fix for our problems might be. We'll also talk about interest rates and the economy and how it might affect Canada's housing market in 2023. Part of the sun has broken off and formed a strange vortex. What are we talking about? We'll find out from Frank Florian. Uh, earlier in the show, we ran through some of the numbers around the uh, health care deal and uh, Daniel Smith's response to it. It's a proposed health care deal. Nothing's been signed yet. However, um, you know, it's a $2 billion payment to uh, try and deal with some of the immediate pressures that we're talking about. Um, and then there's also um, an increase to the health transfers uh, that get paid every year. So there's more money coming that way. And there's also um, the opportunity to explore some bilateral agreements. So provinces uh, can sort of detail exactly what's most important to their jurisdiction and work with some deals uh, with the federal government on that. So um, Danielle Smith says she saw some positive things uh, within that announcement. Uh, all the premiers saying they're disappointed with the level of increased funding. They wanted to see more. However, um, there are some positive indicators in there as well. So uh, that's the take from the politicians. What about uh, the docs? We're going to chat with the Canadian Medical Association and, and get their take on this situation, how they're feeling about what they saw. We're going to be speaking with past president um, Catherine Smart joining us now to talk about this. Uh, Dr. Smart, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me. So, um, okay, first of all, we all know that there's some pretty serious issues. It's a crisis, depending on who you talk to. Um, what was your initial reaction to the announcement you heard uh, following the First Minister's meeting this week? Well, I think like many Canadians, I was relieved to see that we're at least starting down the road of making some progress. I think the federal government has laid out a blueprint of sort of what they're willing to do and some priority areas that they would like to see focused on. And, and those priority areas definitely align with things we've been advocating for at the Canadian Medical Association that are important to Canadians in terms of getting the healthcare system back on track. So that was encouraging. Um, but you know, I, I think it's the beginning. Uh, the, mm -hmm. What's going to matter is what actually happens. Um, of course, those bilateral agreements with each province are going to be important. I think that's where some of the accountability may come in a bit more strongly is there. Um, and then what are the provincial governments going to actually do with these dollars? How are, how are things going to be different? You know, one of the big things we've been talking about is the need to move the healthcare system beyond the status quo, which isn't serving Canadians. So so how do we take these investments and the dollars we're already spending on healthcare, and how do we make sure that we're actually getting at those root issues that need to be transformed so that healthcare is flowing effectively to people and that's the outcome of course that really matters so you know i think this is the beginning of that journey uh, but what's going to be the most important is how quickly we get down the road and quickly is also what dr alika fontaine was talking about the current president of the cma saying you know what all you leaders you can't sit and wait on this one for too long we need to do this and we need to do this now it's it's an urgent situation so same thing with you uh, we need to act we can't we can't afford to wait no, absolutely. I absolutely agree with Dr. Lafontaine. I mean, we've been calling out this emergency for months, if not years. Um, and now here we are at the beginning, which is which is good. It's it's better than being nowhere. Uh, but time is of the essence here, right? Things are getting worse daily. And, and one of the biggest issues of how things are getting worse is the people in the system who mm -hmm. are becoming increasingly burnt out and we're losing people, especially our nursing staff, which are so important uh, to the delivery of health care. And, and that's happening because they're being asked to show up daily to an untenable workplace. Um, so, you know, the longer we wait to address these challenges, I think the bigger the problems grow, the more 
more people we lose. And given that the human health resources in the system are one of the biggest challenges, we just cannot afford to not be fixing things so that we can keep the experts that we have. Um, you mentioned the uh, bilateral agreements. Uh, we, you know, There's the immediate funding and then I guess we could call it strings attached, but the bilateral agreements focusing on four specific areas, um, access to family health care, um, finding, retaining, recruiting health care workers, mental health and substance abuse, and data collection and sharing. What are your thoughts on those four pillars that have been identified here? Do you agree with that? I absolutely do. I think those are four very critical pillars. You know, primary care is the foundation of our healthcare system. We need to ensure that every Canadian has access to a primary care health team. And we know right now, you know, that number's increased from 5 million to 6.5 million Canadians without that access. So a focus there makes a ton of sense. It's necessary and it's the most cost-effective space that we spend our dollars. So I was really glad to see that. Again, the health workforce, like I was already mentioning, you know, the burnout, the issues are huge. We've got to retain the people we have um, and they've got to be able to show up to a place where they can do their jobs in a fulfilling way and, and connect to that purpose that brought them into healthcare. So I think a focus there is key. Mental health is a huge issue as we all know uh, the mental health of Canadians has worsened through the pandemic. We're seeing, you know, again, that substance use issues, opioid overdose spiraling out of control across the country. So, and we know that often mental health services are not included in that package of universal health care. And many Canadians are having to pay out of pocket, which again creates an equity issue and a barrier for many people to get effective mental health care. So a focus there, I think, is, is essential. And data has to be part of it. You know, it's incredible that in 2023, we do not have high quality data flowing through our system yeah. that you know is accessible to Canadians right on two levels one that you as a citizen can see what's actually happening in your healthcare system and how are we moving the dashboard in a transparent way but also that you don't have access to your own medical information and your own medical record i mean those things are are quite shocking i think when you think of the way we interact with technology and data in the rest of our lives so that's got to change for sure yeah it's almost like a black hole and not only for it patients is. but for doctors too right it's really hard to just access some of the information that would really help them do their jobs. Oh, absolutely. It, it's, you know, we, we can be in the same city and not yeah. have access, you know, to the physician in the community's record in the hospital and vice versa. And, and when you start to look at, you know, some cross-border things, you know, you think about people that live on the border of BC, but they're actually closer to Alberta. So they may be moving from, you know, for specialist care across into Calgary from, you know, the southern part of British Columbia. Well, now, you know, now it's impossible. Those physicians can't access anything of their health records. So, so this lack of, of data sharing, this lack of access to medical records, it's a huge issue. It impacts quality of care. It impacts costs because sometimes things get repeated that don't need to be just because you can't find what was already done. And, and for patients, so frustrating uh, to not be able to, to have access to their own information. So we need to do a lot better in that space. As you said, this is just a start. It's a, I mean, there's some positive things within there, obviously. What has to happen next? Where do we need to go? Uh, as somebody who's been involved with the healthcare system for a while, uh, how do we fix this mess, Doc? Well, you know, again, I think we've just talked about four priority areas that would be a great starting point. Of course, there's many other things that we could talk about. Um, the healthcare system's complicated, but I don't think we're going to change anything if we don't choose an area and then choose a, a path forward, right? So let's set some goals and let's go there. If we want to say primary care, then let's set the goal of every Canadian having access to primary care, just like every child has access to a public school. And let's look at what needs to happen to actually make that a reality in the next five years. And let's let's make that 
you know, what needs to be done. Um, and, and I think you could say the same across these other issues. So I think we're going to need that leadership. We're going to have to set some audacious goals so that people can strive towards them. Um, and then I think, for, you know, for the different governments, the stakeholders are ready to do the work. They need to get those people to the table and lay out that plan and let's put some metrics on it and let's get doing the work. Um, we're never going to get there if we don't start. And, and I think the time to start is now. One of the things that is in some circles a non-starter, and we've seen it come back into this conversation, uh, Doug Ford in Ontario talking about some privately offered, publicly funded healthcare um, changes in his province. We know what happens in other parts of the country. What's the CMA take on that? Is that something that we could possibly expand or is that a slippery slope? Yeah, I think that's an important question. And, and again, when we talk about that, I think it's really important that we're clear what we're talking about. And it's a challenging conversation in Canada because often people are talking about different things but using the same language. So we already have a high volume of publicly funded, privately mm -hmm. delivered healthcare in Canada. And I, in fact, most doctor's offices are exactly that. They're a small business where the physician funds the infrastructure of care through their public funds they receive for the services they give their patients. And that that model is, is very common. So we already have that. I think the bigger challenge, and I think what we should be more worried about is is the, the change in terms of for-profit healthcare. Um, I think there's lots of opportunities to have collaboration between private and publicly funded things as long as they're not for profit and as long as is if there's equity issues are being addressed and as long as we're using those dollars wisely as we do today and there's opportunities to expand there and improve access i think it's a different thing when you start to bring the for-profit aspect right. in that's when you start to have you know of course now some dollars instead of going directly to patient care are being skimmed off to create profits for corporations that's when you start to get the equity issues and that's when you start to decrease the value so i think what we want to be really talking about is is our publicly system public healthcare system you know fully invested and fully optimized we know that it's not um, but i don't think that we should be afraid of different ways of delivering care as long as we're addressing that at the heart of that is equity and that the model is is not a, a for-profit model some of the people we've spoken to and i think it's a great idea and i don't know how we do it and i'm wondering if you have some thoughts it seems like unfortunately with the issues as important as healthcare, it would be really really helpful for all of us if they we're removed from the election cycle somehow because I mean mm -hmm. we're, we're talking about premiers and the prime minister and of course they're they're all talking about we need a political win it's got to look right politically all these sorts of things if we could just have it done in the best interest of running the healthcare system rather than running for re-election can that be done is that possible Oh, I absolutely agree. Wouldn't that be amazing if it was? I mean, I think there's no question that the political cycle is a huge barrier when you're looking at something as significant as transforming the public health care system, right? It's it's not going to happen in a short amount of time. Um, and again, you know, just like we were talking about before, it's hard to have intelligent conversations about what's actually going on when everyone's trying to sling mud at each other with these sort of one-liner headlines that many times are actually not even accurate. So I, I would love to see a commitment from all levels of government to try to be less partisan about this issue, to recognize that it's going to take cooperation between the federal and provincial governments to solve this problem, that no one party or level of government got us here. And it just as you said, this issue is of critical importance to every person yeah. in this country. So let's rise above that and let's understand that we're going to need to cooperate in different ways and in different levels of transparency to solve this. And that's in everyone's best interest. You know, it is the largest expenditure of our tax dollars in this country. Canadians deserve for that system to work. They deserve for it to be accountable. And I think they deserve to have their politicians move past the politics so that they can deliver health care to Canadians. So, you know, will that happen? I don't know. Do I think it should happen? Absolutely. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Dr. Smart, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate the conversation.
Uh, a couple other conversations on the way for you now. Uh, did you see the jobs report that came out today? Wow, go Canada, hey? Uh, blew away expectations. Um, it was far better than... Um, Anticipated. In fact, it was called a blowout report by one economist. 153,000 people joining the labor force last month. Um, unemployment holding steady uh, at 5%, just slightly above the record low of 4.9%. Job gains right across all sectors. Full-time work growing by 121,000 positions. Far outpacing expectations from all of the economists. So um, does that change the calculation around interest rates? A lot of the economists uh, from the major banks today saying, doesn't really look like there's a recession on the horizon here. But um, based on what we've seen, it's another positive indicator about where we're going, at least uh, compared to what some of the dire forecasts were earlier. But already there's been a lot going on when it comes to the economy in this country i mean as you know the bank of canada right now is saying they're hitting pause on interest rate hikes they're gonna gonna hold for a while wait and see how they affect things as they settle in banks saying they think the job's been done the economy will slow enough to bring inflation under control so they're not anticipating further hikes to be needed even some corners talking about potential rate cuts before this year is over. Bank of Canada not going down that road yet. They're pouring cold water on that kind of talk. But there's definitely people out there thinking that that is in the cards. And watching all of this very, very closely, of course, is the real estate sector, the housing sector in our country, and what's going to happen there, because interest rates have a big impact on it. So let's chat with Randall Bartlett, uh, Desjardins Senior Director of Canadian Economics, and one of the authors of a report looking into this very subject. Randall, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Oh, very happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so you are one of the authors of this new Outlook report for 2023. So before we get to the Outlook, let's start with where we are now. With all the upward pressure that we've seen on interest rates, how much has it slowed things down in terms of the housing market? Well, I mean, what we've seen so far is that coming off of our February 2022 peak, I mean, the Canadian housing market is, you know, we've seen sales fall about 40%. We've seen listings down about 20%. Uh, average home prices in Canada have come down about 20%. Very wide variability, of course, across the country. But uh, certainly it's something that, uh, you know, we, we saw the correction happen very quickly and very early. And since then, we've seen a bit of stabilization. So right. about the first, after about six months, we've seen the housing market stabilize to some extent. And now we're it looks like it's a market, at least nationally, that's trying to find a bottom at this point. Yeah, okay, I was going to ask. So we're not at that bottom yet, you don't think, getting there, but we haven't quite hit the bottom yet? Yeah, that's 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 our view. I mean, we've taken a look at a lot of the data across the country, and uh, our you know what, what we've uh, come to the conclusion of is that uh, we're... You know, the housing market still has uh, has some way to go uh, lower, but really it's, uh, the, the, it's the, the pace is going to be very gradual in terms of the decline through to the second half of the year. Um, a big part of that reason is that you have people who are, you know, continuing to renew their mortgages at much higher rates than mm-hmm. we've seen in the past. And we're still getting a lot of housing supply coming on the market, but uh, certainly it's that, that, that renewal that's causing, uh, causing a little bit of pain for uh for households or ongoing pain for households. But ultimately, you know, we think as we see rents rise, so we see that, you know, prices are coming down and rents are rising. So, you know, we start seeing ultimately that as markets anticipate central banks are going to cut, we're going to start seeing that interest borrowing rates are going to be coming down as well. So it really is this combination of, um, you know, falling home prices, ultimately interest rates coming down combined with a healthy job market, 
high population growth because of immigration, that sort of thing. It's really, we think, going to you know create a bottom for the housing market uh, by the second half of this year. And then into the second half, and as we get towards the end of this year, you're anticipating things could be much different, right? I mean, things could start heading back up pretty quickly. Yeah, we think so. We think so. We think that by, you know, by the fourth quarter of the year, certainly that uh, housing uh, sales are going to be tracking higher. We should start to see prices are going to follow and listings as well. Um, housing starts, you know, we think will you know, continue to come down and probably more quickly sort of mid-year, but then they'll start to pick up in 2024 as well as demand picks up again. So really, it's a, it's a fairly positive story for the housing market in 2024 relative to uh, certainly where we were in 2022, but even 2023. Now, this pause that was announced by the Bank of Canada, is that uh, like they're, they're saying the rates could go up a little bit more? They don't anticipate that. They're saying they're not looking to cut rates, but we know some of the banks already are. So this, this climate that we're at right now in terms of pausing and waiting to see what's going to happen with the market. Is that enough to start enticing some people in off the sidelines, do you think? Oh, I, I absolutely think so. I think a lot of Canadians, when you look at uh, how they've been bore, how they changed their borrowing behavior since the time of the pandemic. They've really been moving away from variable rate mortgages, which yep. you know dominated during the pandemic when we saw you know short term rates at very very low levels. Since short term rates have gone up, Canadians have moved more to. Sh- sort of shorter-term fixed rates, sort of the one to three years sort of thing, hedging seemingly that the Bank of Canada is going to ultimately start cutting rates in the very high levels that we're at right now. And so our expectation is that, you know, Canadians have already been anticipating this, and we've started to see the financial markets have been anticipating um, lower short-term rates in the future, and that's been reflected in five-year bond yields, two-year bond yields, and those ultimately get reflected in borrowing costs. And so really it's, it's just a matter of now the bank is on hold, you know, when is that, when are those cuts going to happen in the future? And I think to the point in the, you brought up in the introduction, today's jobs data really sort of muddies the water. It does. Where, where, you know, no, no one anticipated uh, such a uh, massive bumper print in, uh, in jobs in January. And so it's something that uh, now we're all in the process of (laughs) reevaluating our outlook for the Canadian economy, as well as for Bank of Canada interest rate policy. What, what, what is the most jarring thing and not jarring, but a surprising thing about that jobs report? Is it the fact that, Hey, if you were looking for a recession, this shows that that is not likely. I mean, why does this shake things up so much? Well, it shakes things up so much because, you know, when economists, you know, try to get a sense of where the economy is going, we use a lot of models and we do this sort of thing. And, uh, you know, this print doesn't fit with anything, any of the priors that uh, economists have, where we expect that when interest rates are high, ultimately the impact is on interest rate sensitive parts of the economy, like the housing market, which we've seen, spills over into broad, more broadly into the, the economy and labor market. And you should start seeing that uh, you know, job growth slows and ultimately the unemployment rate starts to rise at these levels of interest rates. That's not what we saw today, and that's not what we saw in December, and uh, certainly that's not what we saw south of the border yeah. either. So it really flies in the space with uh, a lot of our priors on how higher interest rates impact an interest rate-sensitive economy like Canada. And, of course, uh, last one, I'll let you go. We're talking about Canada, housing market, so there's going to be regional differences here, right? Oh, big time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When you look at uh, how... Provinces like Alberta are going to perform uh, relative to, say, central Canada. It's, uh, it's a big, big difference. Um, you know, the Prairie provinces are expected to be the outperformers in terms of the housing market going forward. Uh, they saw lower peaks, but are expected to see, um, you know, higher troughs and ultimately recover earlier as uh, commodity prices remain elevated. And, uh, 
you know, and and, and a lot of uh, the new uh, immigrants that we see coming to Canada will be going to those provinces to take advantage of the uh, the you know the, the very positive labor market there and economic activity. Yeah, interesting times as always, Randall. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you being here. successfully navigating an asteroid field is approximately 3,720 to one. Yeah, you know we like to talk about space now and again here on the program. There's a story that's been number one on the Global News webpage all day long, and I can see why. The headline is really, really interesting. Part of the sun breaks free and forms a strange vortex baffling scientists. So I thought, hey, I'll read this story, and then we can talk about it on the air. So I read the story. I have no idea what it is. I have no idea what they're talking about. So we decided to reach out to someone who will know. We know that. We've talked to him before. Frank Florian is the director of the Planetarium and Space Sciences at TELUS World of Science. Frank, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me on, Shay, again. What is this? What are we talking about here? A piece of the sun broke off? What, do we, what does that mean? Well, it's not not as dramatic as that story or that headline makes it out to be. I mean, the sun itself uh, right now is becoming more active. It's uh, yeah, the sun itself has an eleven year solar cycle, and in that eleven year period, it kind of wanes in its uh, energy output and, and its activity, and then it starts to build until we get to the solar maximum. We're right now coming back up to solar maximum, which means the sun's getting more active. And when we use our telescopes at the science center using a special filter, we can actually see these eruptions of gas coming off the, the solar surface. Now, well, what in fact happened right now is that basically there was a, uh, an explosion uh, on the surface of the sun, which does happen. These are called uh, coronal mass ejections, mm-hmm. and the sun does spit out stuff uh, out into space all the time. Um, this one, though, happened in the northern region of the sun, uh, upwards of the, around the 55th uh, latitude, so fairly high, almost like Edmonton's uh, latitude on the Earth. So, you know, fairly high in the northern extremes of the sun, and when it spat out the material, it didn't actually fly away from the sun. It basically kind of swirled around the North Pole of the sun. And, and I think astronomers have never seen quite something like that before. Oh, interesting. Okay, so it's a typical thing that we'd see, but the way it acted after it ex- or ejected is interesting. Okay, what, what does it mean? I mean, uh, when we talk about those coronal mass ejections or whatever, uh, sometimes there's a risk that they can cause problems down here on Earth. Does this fit into that category at all, do you think? Oh, yeah, it's all gloom and doom. No, no not, not at all. Uh, you know, these things happen all the time. They, when we get a coronal mass ejection and uh, that material hurdles its way out into space and, and, and interacts with the Earth's magnetic field, we can get some beautiful auroral displays in our evening sky. In fact, over the past week, there's been uh, numerous... Uh, alerts that were given out saying, hey, get outside and look for northern light. So, you know, that's one of the things that can happen from these types of outbursts from the sun is just beautiful northern light activity. But depending upon how strong these particular outbursts are, they can interfere with our radio communication and um, other types of signals can shut down satellites in Earth orbit. So there's some hazards to these particular outbreaks. Now, we don't have to worry about these particles themselves doing much for life forms here on the Earth, uh, but it can interact with a lot of our electrical devices that we use in our everyday life nowadays. Gotcha. Okay, but this is just part of the typical cycle. It's not anything uh, wildly unusual then. Well, it's just a little bit unusual in the sense that this this, uh, um, explosion happens uh, on this filament or this uh, little uh, little bit of gas kind of looping around called the prominence. 
And it uh, and what happens is that you get these localized magnetic fields around sunspot groups, and they trap energy. And uh, over time, that energy gets released, and that's when the sun sort of blows its top in a way. And it, it, it expels a lot of material out in the space. This stuff, though, from this time around, uh, didn't expel it in space. It kind of just uh, hovered around the north pole of the sun. Now, the sun itself is like a big bar magnet in space. And in this 11-year solar cycle, the sun itself has its magnetic field flipped. The North Pole, oh, okay. the, the Sun becomes the South Pole, and the South Pole becomes the North Pole. And uh, this, this astronomers do know, and uh, the cycle of this flipping of the North and South pole, major pole of the Sun magnetic pole, uh, basically, you know, it, it can do some weird things to the magnetic field of the Sun overall, where, again, some of these particles will follow because it's a plasma that you're dealing with when you're dealing with the Sun's gases. It's superheated gas that is now charged particles, and they'll follow these magnetic field lines. So when we saw this one kind of erupt in the north region of, of the sun, you could kind of see that there's something strange happening with the magnetic field at the north pole of the sun. And, and I think astronomers are thinking right now that that could maybe say that the magnetic field of the sun itself is now flipping or reversing, which means we're getting closer and closer to that solar maximum period. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Hey, one other one before I let you get out of here. This this Russian satellite with an undisclosed mission uh, was, I don't know, it was destroyed in Earth's orbit last month, sending a cloud of debris whipping around the planet. We've talked about this space junk before. What do you know about this? Is this a big deal? Well, anytime they kind of destroy a satellite in Earth orbit, it's always a big deal, especially for the astronauts on, on board any of the space stations, yeah. like the International Space Station. And, you know, it doesn't take much. That stuff, uh, even just the, the grain of sand traveling very quickly can puncture the, the International Space Station's uh, metal and, you know, could create a breach and that could actually put all the astronauts in, uh, you know, hazards uh, in, in, in the way of, uh, you know, gloom and doom for their part if they you know don't put their spacesuits on fast enough so you know these things out there that's not a good thing breaking up satellites in low earth orbit is not a good thing to do in fact with more junk up there it becomes even more hazardous to even launch rockets into space because you just never know where some of the small stuff is i mean uh, norad uh, u.s space command actually does keep track of a lot of the stuff up there but again a lot of the smaller things we just don't have any control over and uh, it all becomes this big shooting gallery out there, and if you're at the wrong place at the right time, I guess, <laughs> you can get uh, these uh, things hitting you, so that's not a good thing. No, and and there's so much of it up there, too. I mean, it's just all over the place now, and more being added all the time. It's a little scary. Yeah, you know, go outside on any given night right now, and you can look up, and I, I, I have to say, I'm seeing more and more satellites every time crossing the sky. Even with our light polluted environments here in uh, the city of Edmonton or Calgary, and you're looking up there, you'll see satellites. Sometimes you might even see Elon Musk's uh, Starlink satellites, which is a train of 60-plus satellites. Yeah, I've seen that, yeah. Little row. And they're incredible, but again, the more junk that we put up there, you know, the the... The, the chances now of something actually hitting something uh, of uh, value over importance is going to be much greater. So it's it's uh, not, not a good thing. No, definitely not. Frank, it's a good thing chatting with you, though. I always look forward to it. Thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.